chapters to Acts chapter 15. For those of you who are visiting, we are moving through the book of Acts, uh, one passage at a time, actually. This will be our third time in Acts 15. We looked at Acts 15 from the standpoint of what it said about how the church should govern itself in the first sermon. Second sermon, last week, we looked at Acts 15 from the standpoint of the uh, essence of the gospel. And now we are looking at Acts 15 from the standpoint of the compromise that uh, they uh, had had come up with and, and how that then uh, the principles for compromise for us and how we are to uh, live together uh, in the body of Christ. We're going to start with verse excuse me verse 19 this morning and go through the end of the chapter. Acts 15 beginning with verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had, had, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we, pro where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take uh, with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, so I pray that you would add your blessing to it and that you would now uh, give me your help and your people, uh, your assistance as uh, I proclaim your word and as your people hear it. I pray that um, we would not only learn from it, but we would be changed to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. We enjoy freedom like no other nation on earth. And we, as has already been mentioned in this service, we owe our continued freedom to those who have fought, who have bled, and have died for, the free, for, uh, for that freedom. And so we do honor the brave men and women who have died in our country's service on this Memorial Day. Our country's forefathers were gripped by this idea of freedom. But they were far from unified on how to form a constitutional government that would protect and promote that freedom that would last, in their words, unto remote futurity. Future with an I-D-T-Y, <laughs> uh, or I-T-Y uh, on the end of it. Uh, the Constitutional Convention that met in, Phyllis, in Philadelphia uh, during the year 1787 included 55 delegates. They met for four months to try and hammer out uh, our country's constitution. There were many disagreements. There were long debates. And there were some very important compromises. The greatest of these compromises uh, has come to be known as, of course, the Great Compromise. There were two different plans uh, that were put forward during the Constitutional Convention to create the branches of government. There was the Virginia plan that wanted a strong national government and they wanted three branches of government and the legislature would have two houses. Doesn't this sound like what we already have? I mean, doesn't this sound like what we have today? Well, there were also uh, some important differences uh, with what we have today that the Virginia plan, very different than what, what the Virginia plan was putting forward. Uh, the Virginia plan said that the citizens would only be able to vote for the um, the legislators in only one of these uh, branches of or one of these houses uh, in the legislature. The president, the judiciary, and the representatives from the other house would then be chosen from the national legislature. That uh, that the pe and the people had only chosen 
um, the one house, and so the other house would been, then be chosen from the composite that they had chosen uh, nationally, and everybody else would be also chosen uh, from this, uh, from the uh, the two houses. So it's a little confusing, and I'm not doing a very good job explaining it. The New Jersey plan, however, differed slightly because they wanted a more decentralized government. Uh, the New Jersey, or the Virginia plan, put really all the power in the federal government. The New Jersey plan said, no, we need to decentralize it. We need to move power away from the federal government and more back to the states. The Great Compromise combined these two plans, creating our current legislature with two houses, um, the House of Representatives and the Senate, based on population and elected by the people in the other house, uh, the Senate, allowing two senators per state, uh, and they were appointed by the state legislature. This compromise was a pretty big deal. They were um, really uh, at an impasse before they came to this compromise. And the reason I say this is our society has lost the fine art of compromise. Today in politics, compromise consists of lobbyists injecting loads of money into the political system so that the leading politicians have inordinate power and influence in order to then bribe the other politicians with earmarks or, as they are more aptly named, pork barrel projects. Did you see in the, in the news uh, earlier this week, there were a couple of stories about millions of dollars, millions of federal dollars being spent on studying shrimp on treadmills and also on um, women's jello wrestling in Antarctica. Millions of our money being spent on, on, on studying these things. How, how does it happen that this money is spent in such wasteful ways? There you have the art of political compromise in our United States federal government. Or to show again how we have lost the fine art of compromise in our day and age. Consider a compromise in marriage. Typically marriage is thought of today as meeting in the middle. When you talk about compromise, the husband gives 50%, the wife gives 50%, and voila, you have a compromise. This is a repugnant view of compromise. Here's why. This view of compromise is based on each person wanting their own 100%, wanting their own agenda. The husband wants his agenda, the wife wants her agenda, but because they live under the same roof, then they both have to give some to get what they want. So they meet in the middle, or if one's a better negotiator uh, than the other, then they don't necessarily meet in the middle. But according to the Bible, marriage consists of two people becoming one. Compromise 
in marriage according to the Bible is the one spouse dying to himself or to herself for the good of his or her spouse. The husband is called to sacrifice himself just as Christ sacrificed himself for the church for the good of his bride. The wife is to sacrifice herself for the good of her husband. It's not meeting 50% in the middle. It is 100%, 100%. The husband 100% dies to himself for the good of his spouse. The wife dies to herself 100% for the good of her spouse. That is compromise in marriage according to the Bible. If you want to check me, you can look at Ephesians chapter 5. I say all this about compromise because compromise is to be a staple practice in the church. How are we to resolve differences in the church? And there's obviously, with, with, with as many people as we have, there are varying opinions uh, regarding our priorities and our practices. There's also personal differences as well. And we're not permitted to simply ignore one another uh, and just do what we want without regard to everyone else in the congregation. So how do we come up with these solutions? And love requires us to go to one another and work out our differences as best as we are able to do so. Acts 15, the passage we've been looking at for the last two weeks and are continuing to look at this morning, is a great example of how compromise takes place in the church. There was a theological difference in the church. So what did they do? Did they ignore it? Did they try and manipulate each other? Did they try and meet each other in the middle and come to some halfway, some some compromise position regarding this theological issue? No. Well, what did they do? Well, if you look back at the beginning of Acts 15, verses 6 and 7, it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after much discussion, or rather much debate, then Peter stood up and began addressing them. What did they do? They debated. They gathered together, and they debated a lot. The church, after this debate, was of one mind regarding the theological issue. The theological issue was that the Gentiles, or the theological decision that they came to, of which they were one mind about, uh, the Gentiles were not required to observe the law of Moses, nor circumcision as a requirement for salvation. They were absolutely unified on this matter. To require them to obey the law of Moses, to require them to be circumcised in order to be saved, would be to gut the gospel of all of its meaning and power. That's why why Peter said in verse 11, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And we looked at that issue and that verse in detail last week. So, the church was very clear about what the Gentiles were to believe. That salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone. Through Jesus Christ alone. But in matters 
regarding how they were to practice their faith, the church recognized that there was room for freedom. The letter that we read here in Acts 15 uh, makes it clear that the church, uh, that the apostles and elders in Jerusalem expected the Gentiles to exercise their freedom that they had in Christ. In other words, they were telling these Gentile Christians, you don't need to become Jews in order to be believers in Jesus Christ. You don't need to become, take on the whole Jewish culture in order to be saved. But here is exactly where the compromise was necessary. The Gentiles would be worshipping right alongside these Jewish Christians. In fact, they would be one body. Ephesians chapter 2 says that Jesus, by His death on the cross, destroyed the barrier, destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. He made the two one. The Jews and the Gentiles were now the one body of Christ. And some of the freedoms that the Gentiles would naturally enjoy would greatly unsettle the Jewish believers. So the church said that they were going to forbid four specific activities. Number one, the Gentile believers were to abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols. In the ancient world, what would happen would be um, in the pagan temples, you'd bring your your animal there, you would sacrifice the animal, then uh, the priest... Uh, in order to improve their part, their profit margin, after you sacrifice the, the, the animal, the priest would then turn around and sell the, the dead animal, like the, the cow or the, the goat or whatever. They would sell it to the local butcher at the meat market to, like I said, to improve their, their overhead. And the Gentiles were used to eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. They knew that it was sacrificed to a false god, so it wasn't meaningful um, that it was sacrificed in a temple or to an idol. And so they ate it uh, without worrying in their conscience one bit. But the Jews were so opposed to all forms of idolatry that they just could not bring themselves to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol or to a false god. And so, for the sake of the unity and the congregation, the Jews and the Gentiles worshiping God together, in the letter they said, they instructed the Gentile believers to abstain from eating the meat sacrificed to idols. Secondly, they instructed the Gentile believers to abstain from eating anything that still had the blood in it. Remember in the Gospels how our Lord Jesus said that He made every food clean? And so even blood was clean to, to eat. Um, and so we are able to order our steaks medium rare and enjoy them with a complete freedom of conscience. Uh, But the Old Testament law had forbade anyone to eat meat with blood still in it. And this had been the Jewish practice for centuries. And so they just could not bring themselves to eat of it. It would be like asking a southerner to eat cream of wheat. And I, I say that as a southerner. So for the sake uh, for the sake of uh, table fellowship, the Gentiles were to abstain uh, from eating 
um, anything that still had the blood in it. And since the Gentiles were to abstain from eating anything that had blood in it, they were also asked to abstain from anything that was strangled. Uh, this was simply because the method of killing an animal uh, by strangulation prevented the blood from being drained from the animal. And then fourthly and lastly, the Gentile believers were, were to abstain from sexual immorality. And the commentators have convinced me that this is relating to a specific type of sexual immorality, specifically the marriage between close relatives as outlined in Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 18. But this is not to say that um, other types of sexual immorality were permitted. They didn't address the the general sexuality or sexual immorality in general because it was um, taken for granted that that was not permitted sexual purity has always been expected of God's people the apostle Paul was clear in Ephesians 5 Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this. Can you hear how the Apostle Paul is underlining uh, each, each sentence here because it is so important for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It is very common and very accepted in our culture for people to live together outside of the, the marriage bond. It is very common and even culturally accepted that people would have sexual relations outside of marriage. It is very common, even culturally accepted, for people to give full vent to their sexual lusts. The Apostle Paul says here in the passage that I just quoted from Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you are jeopardizing your soul for all eternity. These, the compromises, these four compromises that we have just listed, the church made them for the benefit of the church. And it's really good to see the church compromising and coming up with and working in such harmony and unity. You know, this was a big deal. The challenge of bringing Jews and Gentiles into the one body of Christ was very difficult. A lot of challenges. 
And the church could have easily, at this point here in Acts 15, had a church split. But then, the harmony and the unity that we see here in the first part of Acts 15 makes what happened next all the more unbelievable. Look at verses 36 through 41. I've already read it, but here's what's happening. Paul and Barnabas thought it wise to then go and visit those churches that they had visited on their first missionary journey. And um, Barnabas wanted to take uh, John Mark along. But you will remember that John Mark joined them on their previous journey, but abandoned them and went home before the trip uh, ended. That he had accompanied them through Cyprus, and then when they went north to Pamphylia, he abandoned them. And um, this relatively... Well, and what happened was now that Barnabas wanted to bring Paul, John Mark along again, Paul objects. And Paul will not relent. Paul thought it best not to take him since he had proven uh, previously to be unreliable. Barnabas wanted to take him. It should be noted that John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And this relatively minor issue led to a major disagreement so that Paul and Barnabas separated from each other. This is staggering to me. The church finds a way to compromise on this big issue of Jews and Gentiles, and then Paul and Barnabas cannot find room for agreement on whether John Mark should accompany them or not. There's a lot of speculation as to why the disagreement grew so sharp, but since the Bible is silent on this matter, I'll try and be silent as well. Suffice it to say that there are times when differences cannot be reconciled and people must agree to disagree. I will say that Paul's letter, I'm sorry, I'll say that Paul's latter letters show that his friendship with Barnabas uh, continued long after the split. Uh, there's passages in First and Second Corinthians that bear this out, and also in Paul's prison letters. He even talks about how useful John Mark had come to him. And we, we, we know John Mark uh, as being the, um, the man who eventually would write the Gospel of Mark. So, when you part with someone over differences, remain open to reconciliation. And as happy as I am that there was long-term reconciliation, there was also a short-term benefit that resulted from the split. Whereas you had one missionary team, since they split, you now have two missionary teams. In conclusion, all this talk about compromise leads me to make a couple of applications regarding compromise. The first application is that I believe that the modern day church has turned the issue of compromise completely upside down. In areas in which we have freedom, we have turned into religious inflexibility. We look down our nose at others whose worship style is different. We erect unspoken codes of manners within the church that if you break those unspoken codes, you can be ostracized. We insist that our way is the only way. 
and we make our personal gratification and happiness more important than the glory of God. Those are some areas in which God has said you have freedom and we become religiously inflexible. It's where our faith turns into religion. But then on the opposite side, where God calls us to be inflexible, we find room to bend. Jesus is the Lord. That means that He is the boss. John 14 verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey me. In Luke 14, He says, If you are His disciple, you are to carry your cross and follow Him regardless of the suffering it might entail. Matthew 10 says that you must be willing to lose your life for His sake. Otherwise, you cannot be His disciple. These are pretty stringent. And Jesus is inflexible on these matters. But because they're difficult, we allow some wiggle room. We allow some compromise. That's why on the, begin, on the front of the bulletin, as I usually put quotes, I have some quotes. And I'm not going to read all of them, but I'm going to read the first and then the last two about compromise. John Blanchard said, It is perhaps the greatest sin of the greatest number of Christians that in so many details of life, they put God second. And then the last two, William Culbertson said, Some people want to be vaccinated with a mild dose of Christianity so as to be protected from the real thing. And Francis Schaeffer said, Accommodation leads to accommodation, which, of course, leads to accommodation. Your salvation in Jesus Christ is free. No amount of obedience can save your soul. And once you are in Christ, you are free. But if you do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to lay down everything, your possessions, your will, even your life, you cannot be His disciple. Jesus came and died. He paid it all for us so that we have to pay nothing for our salvation. But when you come to Christ and receive His salvation, He says, are you willing to give Him everything? To follow Him means to follow Him as Lord, follow Him as Savior, to follow Him as your God. So are you willing to follow Him without compromise? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come to You this morning wanting You to be all in all, wanting You to be everything, God, I pray that you would 
help us to know how to compromise when we need to compromise and then also to be inflexible and uncompromising in our trust and in our obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I pray that if there are any here who have turned their faith upside down Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would set them right side up as they flee to the Lord Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.